This is an OSV Podcast Network production. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com. Welcome to Season 2 of Revive, where we explore how to renew and revive your faith. Our goal with each episode is for you to leave feeling equipped to bring Christ's love to the world. I'm your host, Tim Lukowski, CEO of the National Eucharistic Congress. Special thank you to today's show sponsors, Relevant Radio and Knights of Columbus. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Glimkowski, CEO of the National Eucharistic Congress. Thank you for tuning into Revive, where on the road to the National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis, this July 17th through 21st, we are going to be exploring how to renew and revive our living relationship with Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. We're honored to be the official podcast of the USCCB's National Eucharistic Revival. Come along and discover the depths of the Catholic faith with me and special guests from across the country and leave feeling equipped to bring Christ's love to the world. In this, the second season of the Revive podcast, we are having conversations with Catholic leaders who are committed to helping you enkindle your missionary fire so that you can share the gift of our Eucharistic Lord with others. It's a joy to have you joining us today. We hope that you're especially excited to hear from uh, our, our very special guest today, Bishop Andrew Cousins. Uh, as we discuss the National Eucharistic Revival, Congress, pilgrimage, we get the behind-the-scenes stories from uh, really the bishop who's been entrusted in a particular way by the Lord and by uh, his brother bishops with stewarding and shepherding this movement. All right, so a little bit first about Bishop Cousins. Bishop Cousins is the ordinary, the bishop, uh, the eighth bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, installed on December 6, 2021. Uh, previous to that, he was the auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis from 2013 to 2021, so 10 years a bishop this winter. He grew up in Denver, Colorado. He's a Benedictine college grad, and we grew up skiing and hiking in the mountains. Uh, he served uh, with Net Ministries uh, uh, as a missionary, and that's how he got to the Twin Cities, where he's a priest uh, of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. He was one of the founding members of the, the Companions of Christ, a fraternity of diocesan priests in St. Paul, and worked for St. Paul's Outreach, leading college Bible study groups. He is the chairman of the National Eucharistic Revival and the National Eucharistic Congress, uh, an incredibly holy, prayerful, visionary uh, bishop, a gifted communicator. I couldn't be more pleased to get to invite to the podcast today, Bishop Cousins. Bishop, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Tim. It's a delight to be with you. No, that's great. Yeah, this is this is fun. We so for everyone's awareness out there, Bishop Cousins is my boss. So we meet all the time, right? And we're uh, working together on this. Uh, been working together since before uh, he was my boss in the National Eucharistic Revival Project. But this is a fun chance, I get. I think for us to get to um, hear from you a little bit, uh, some of the story of um, the National Eucharistic Revival, because I think now at this point most people have heard about this movement out there. It's something you know they've seen a billboard or heard something uh, in a homily. And, um, but in a unique way, I mean, this is, we're now going on sort of year three since this actually started to kind of percolate in the, the minds and hearts of, um, of the bishops. And I mean, well, more longer than that in the minds and hearts of the bishops, but even some of the initial strategic planning and stuff. And so maybe we could start there. Like where, how did, how did you get involved in, uh, the National Eucharistic Revival? How did this come to be? Um, maybe you can give us some of that origin story. Yeah, as I often say, the most important things in my life, they kind of landed in my lap. I didn't really choose them. Um, what happened here was, you know, um, it was actually Bishop Barron, who having seen the Pew study in September of 2019, began, became quite concerned about uh, Eucharistic belief in the United States. And really, he wasn't alone in that. There were a lot of bishops who were very kind of disturbed by that study. And I think 
you know, moved in a helpful way to say, we should really focus on this problem. We have a crisis in Eucharistic faith. And uh, so even before uh, COVID, I was elected chair of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. I was elected chair-elect on in September 2019. And uh, so then I was along the ride with the ride with Bishop Barron when he was kind of discussing with other USCCB leaders about this possibility. Um, but then COVID hit in March of 2020. And so we weren't able even to bring this idea forward because there was no June meeting that year. And it wasn't until I was taking over as chair in November of 2020 that this idea began to be able to move forward. And so we brought it to the bishops in November of 2020. And because of COVID and because of the crisis in Eucharistic faith, there was really almost unanimous approval for moving ahead with this. And so that's when we really began to build when I became the chair in November of 2020. And and as you know, Tim, you were very much a part of that building in the spring of 21, where we interviewed evangelistic leaders all over the country and began to get a sense of what, what might actually be possible, um, given the, what we were seeing, which was the work of the Holy Spirit across the country on this particular issue of the crisis of Eucharistic faith. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting detail that I think not everyone's aware of, that um, very much so people are aware that this is a unique movement of the bishops. Um, I, I think what's really powerful about this is how it's sort of an unprecedented collaboration among apostolates in this kind of missionary moment in the church. And that is a piece of it, sort of this, these listening sessions, the synodal building of the National Eucharistic Revival. Um, like it wasn't just like a committee at the USCCB that sort of cooked this thing up. I mean, you were interviewing hundreds of evangelistic leaders, religious orderly. I mean, it was, it was really this broad sort of consultation to say, should the bishops do this? And if so, you know, how, um, what was that kind of like having those conversations? Like, did it grow your conviction? Absolutely. You know, is everything from people and parish leaders, diocesan leaders, evangelistic leaders, apostolate leaders, as you said, and that's what actually grew the conviction was, I remember at the ever at the end of each one of those zoom sessions where we'd invite them to kind of ponder the questions, if we were going to do something, what, what, what would we do? And is it worth doing? And, you know, how could we really affect the church at all levels if we wanted to try to do that? And at the end of all those sessions, I said to everybody, will you help? And it was amazing that it was almost unanimous, right? People were like, yeah, we want to be a part of this. And I think that was kind of the unique insight of the Holy Spirit was this is a bishop-led movement, but it's not just a bishops-only movement, right? It was from immediately a kind of collaboration with all these incredible apostolates and I think everybody saw the moment, like, actually, this is a really important moment to focus on the Eucharist. Hmm. And I think people captured that and said, yeah, we need to do this. And it needs to be more than just kind of forming leaders or some of the other things that the USCCB has tried to do in the past years, important as those were, like the Quinto Encuentro, right? Forming Hispanic leaders across the country. No, this needs to be really an attempt to get to the grassroots hmm. and make an impact uh, on the country. Yeah, really reach the pews, reach beyond the pews, beyond the parking lot of a parish, even in the third year, the year of mission. I do. I think that's one of the things that has uh, seemed so um, encouraging to me about the Eucharistic revival is um, sort of everyone is playing their part really well, right? The bishops as spiritual fathers, sort of inaugurating and casting vision over the church, inviting, you know, local uh, parishes to lead the way. And these apostolates who have so often been the tip of the spear, like it's this um, really kind of healthy image of what. A missionary church looks like and how it how everyone's uh unique um 
charisms can can be employed to sort of this central focus, like the 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 unity and diversity of the work of the church. And I do I give you a ton of credit, kind of for um, for having that instinct to say this can't just be a top down work; it has to be um, bottom up at the same time. I love to um, hear from you, you know, kind of along the lines of of conviction. I, I think it's it's probably fair to say, and this is you know all glory to God, right? Because we're we're involved in this work that. You know, we, we talk about 8,000 parish point persons now are working with the National Eucharistic Revival. And, um, you know, we've done, we've seen dozens of diocesan Eucharistic Congresses with thousands of people involved in processions and, you know, literally like hundreds of thousands of hours of the small group series have been, you know, so it's kind of wild to see now when we were just starting out, it was almost like, all right, is anyone going to jump in? Like, is this just like, we're going to, you know, run up the hill with the flag and no one's going to come. But Clearly now the church is really starting to mobilize around this vision. And it's one of the larger evangelistic initiatives kind of uniquely that the church has collectively undertaken. For me, I can remember the moment that I felt like something like that was happening. It was um, the, the, when the executive team you'd gather this, this group of sort of collaborators that are uniquely close to sort of shepherding the steward there, the, the strategy of the revival uh, gathered in St. Paul in the summer of 2021 to sort of flesh out the three year your movement. And I remember there's an evangelistic leader that I, I trust really deeply who um, I remember I asked the question I was facilitating and said, you know, uh, like, why are you all here? Why have you all committed to participate in this project? And I remember he leaned back, he's very cool. And he leaned back in his chair and he crossed his arms and he said, I feel like uh, after fishing all night, the Lord is finally telling us where to throw our nets. You know, mm-hmm. like he's like, this is, and I remember it, like I got goosebumps, you know, what, what, what for you is, was sort of one of those moments where you were like, oh, this isn't just sort of a nice project the church is undertaking, but really something that the Holy Spirit was calling the church to uniquely. Yeah, there were many moments like that. Part of it was the, the experience of interviewing, interviewing the evangelistic leaders and getting their response and the, the strength with which they were responding. Um, actually, one of the big moments for me, it's, it might seem like a little thing, but it's not at all, was, was the vote, the famous vote of the bishops when in November of 2021, we put before them this idea that we were going to do this three-year revival and at the heart of it was going to be a National Eucharistic Congress. And we haven't done a National Eucharistic Congress in 83 years. And, and this is going to be a big deal. And we expect to have tens of thousands of people there, you know. Um, and I, I thought this was going to be a really heavy lift with the bishops. And when, you know, 95% or higher of the bishops voted in favor of this, like almost unanimous, I was, then I knew the Holy Spirit was up to something because the Holy Spirit had moved the hearts of the bishops to see the importance of this moment. Yeah. But there's, yeah, rem- there's been so, so many, you know, moments along the way where you just start to see, yeah, um, the, it was like the right idea at the right time. Mm. And that's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit bringing the right idea at the right time. And so to get the impact that we have been having has surprised me on one level, but on another level, it's been, no, this is the Holy Spirit's been at work in this whole thing. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I do. I want to talk about the the Congress and why like the move, the movement needed a moment. Um, let me kind of first, like for someone out there who's um, sort of saying, well, there's, there's a lot of problems in the church, you know, like clearly, right. There's, there's a lot going on in the world and the church. Like why is focusing on Jesus and the Eucharist, like, why is that worth all of this uh, time and attention and energy? Like, why was it worth doing a Eucharistic right? Or why do you think God, I guess maybe differently put, why, why did God invite the church to one? 
Yeah, I, I, I often go back to this story that hit me about Leo the, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and at one point early on, somebody sent me his encyclical letter on the Eucharist, and he wrote it in 1902, right at the end of his life, right at the beginning of the 20th century, and he's the Pope who had this sense that the 20th century was going to have really a lot of difficulty and struggle. The enemy was going to have a kind of certain power in the 20th century, and he. He asked that the St. Michael prayer be prayed after every low mass in the 20th century. And he had a sense of the importance of, a, of the Eucharist at the heart of the church. And, you know, the image which, which uh, I think describes it well is to say the Eucharist is the heart of the church. And just like your body, if your heart is strong, the church will be strong. Mm. And he said, you know, we need to focus on the Eucharist because we need to be strengthened in who we are for the world today, Right. As soon as I read that, I thought, that's why the Holy Spirit wants a Eucharistic revival now. If, if we are strong as a church in our Eucharistic life, we're going to be able to be who we should be in the world. If we're weak in our Eucharistic life, then it's going to be a lot more difficult for us to evangelize the modern world or for us to be who we should be in the, in the world. It's like the heart of the body. If the heart is strong and pumping the blood to the members, then the body's going to be strong. And so it's more... You know, I, w- I want to see the statistics go up, you know, at the end of the revival. I hope that we can measure that Eucharistic belief is higher and that especially church attendance is higher. And I want to see those things go up. But it's more, so much more than that for me. It's a spiritual movement that I believe God wants to strengthen his church. And I think that, you know, we're living in a time when it's difficult to be a Catholic and it, it's a very difficult moment for the world and it's a difficult moment for the church and the church needs to be strengthened. And she will be strengthened by coming together around Jesus and lifting up Jesus and individually strengthen our relationship with Jesus so that our hearts are on fire and able to be able to be the witnesses we're called to be in the world. And that, that only happens through learning to live a deeply Eucharistic life. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. I guess someone who's worked in the renewal of the church for 15 years, right? Like I've seen a lot come and go, you know, in terms of really brilliantly laid out strategic plans and the logic of the gospel increasingly to me in my old age, right, is seeming more and more like um, a very, like the, a simple focus on the power of God. Like, I really mm-hmm. do believe when Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, or when, when you see these confrontations that he has, these complex situations that he enters into, um, you know, and he chooses to write in the sand or he chooses to just act simply and powerfully and kind of cut through the noise. Like, I think that's what's convicted me about this is, um, there seems to be something so authentic and just sincere to sort of say, um, we're going to focus on um, what sort of calling back the church to her first love can actually accomplish um, for for the church. But like you said, the ultimate end of that renewed encounter being for the life of the world. And it's a powerful vision you brought to it. Yeah, if we're faithful to the Lord's command, do this in memory of me, which isn't simply doing a ritual, right? That's like living a Eucharistic life. If, and that's the heart of our faith. It, it all flows from that, that moment of the Last Supper and the cross and the resurrection, the Paschal mystery. And if we're faithful to living the Paschal mystery, which is really living a Eucharistic life, that's going to transform us and that's going to transform the world. That's going to be the source of power, really, that the evangelistic movements that we all want to see flourish need in order to flourish. It's drawing their power from the Eucharist. Yeah, amen. Amen. Well said. Um, so yeah, so kind of going from there, right? So there's this, uh, the three-year revival laid out strategically and it's, you know, kind of different audiences that it's meant to reach each year. The, the diocesan year focused on leaders, like you said, and then 
moving past then and deeper into the heart of the church, into the pews, and then the year of mission kind of going out to the margins and the, the, the peripheries in a variety of different ways. Um, but right at the start of that year of mission is, you know, kind of a historic moment, right? The 10th National Eucharistic Congress. Um, maybe like probably a part of this, again, if someone's listening to this, I'm, I'm guessing they're probably aware of the Eucharistic Revival, hopefully more and more, you know, uh, our marketing team, Tanner, uh, you know, is like more people are more and more aware of the, uh, um, uh, the, the National Eucharistic Congress too. But what I think people might not uh, be fully, uh, you know, as, as in the loop on is sort of like, why, why a Congress? Like, why did this grassroots um, why in your, and I think that's maybe important to even phrase it this way. Why was it not enough to do the three year grassroots thing? Why did it need, uh, this sort of central gathering moment of the church, uh, for what you felt like, or, or really, as you discerned, or as you talked to people, these listening sessions, how did that arise to the top to say, no, this is something we really need to do. Yeah, there are so many reasons. Um, one of them you've already stated, which is, um, for this to become a real movement of people who are having an impact together on the church, that movement needs a moment. And if it's going to be a, a national pilgrimage, we need to go somewhere and we need to gather somewhere and we need to provide a moment um, so that the church can come together, really come together before God to ask him to pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, right? And um, we need that to gather as the church and we need a moment of unity as a church. And we need to remind ourselves and our country about our love for Jesus in the Eucharist. And the Eucharistic Congress provides us all these opportunities. I really think it's a, a lot of people don't remember the history of Eucharistic Congresses in this country. And it's, it's easy. It's easy. Most people don't know it because it's so long ago. But this is the 10th National Eucharistic Congress, right? Which means there were nine others. And the first five were really just gatherings of priests and bishops who together to talk about the Eucharist and, and to study the Eucharist. This is a mystery we can study with our whole lives, you know. But then uh, in 1926, uh, it was Cardinal Mundelein in Chicago who uh, got permission to host the, the International Eucharistic Congress in Chicago. And they decided to open this up to lay people. And much to everyone's surprise, 300,000 lay people showed up in Soldier Field for the opening mass. We have pictures of that, right? And then almost a million people showed up at Mundelein Seminary for the closing mass. And Cardinal Mundelein, you know, brought the bus segment across the lake that he had built on a boat up to the Baldacchino that's still there today at Mundelein Seminary for adoration. And million, a million people gathered for that event. Well, this like had a huge impact on, on the Catholic life of our country. And so then the bishops decided, well, we should invite lay people to our National Eucharistic Congresses. And so Omaha, 1930, they, they had a couple of public things like a procession and a men's mass. 40,000 men showed up for the men's mass. Thousands showed up for the procession. And then same thing in uh, Cleveland. Uh, they, you know, they, they rented a small stadium for, for the beginning, but a small auditorium, like 10,000 people. And it wasn't nearly enough. They had to last minute, they had to go and rent a stadium, you know, because so many thousands of people wanted to come. And the same thing happened in New Orleans. And the last one, 1941, St. Paul, 80,000 people processed from the cathedral of St. Paul to the state fairgrounds of the state of Minnesota and did all-night adoration. And they processed in the rain, like three miles, you know. <laughs> the, uh, so this movement was beginning to gain steam. And then it, 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 uh, World War II ended that. And so they couldn't do it in 1945 and, and really stopped doing it. 
you know, the, the next kind of big event was 1976 when we had an International Eucharistic Congress again, and almost a million people showed up in Philadelphia for that, including, you know, some of the bishops who are alive today who were voting for this one were at the 1976 one, along with an unknown, you know, Polish cardinal named Karol Wojtyla, who two years later became John Paul II, right? So this is our history. And this is our history that now we've been asked to take up again at a very particular moment a moment of real need for the church in the United States, a moment where we need to be strengthened in our, in our unity, we need to be strengthened in our love for Jesus in the Eucharist, in our own relationship with him, and we need to be strengthened in our missionary zeal. And the Eucharistic Congress is going to do all those things. The, you know, I'm, I'm a child of, of World Youth Day in Denver, so mm. I had that experience with St. John Paul II right before I entered seminary. Uh, and in 1993, and that experience of the church changed me, you know, it deeply impacted me and um, strengthened my vocation. And, and of course, we know that happened for, for thousands of people, right? And this is not just an event, right? Uh, it, it'd be like saying, well, Pentecost, it was just an event. Well, no, actually, the Holy Spirit showed up and the Holy Spirit transformed people. And this is what the National Eucharistic Congress is going to be. The bishops of the United States have called for this, and they've asked us to gather and to ask God to send his Holy Spirit upon us. And, uh, you know, I've had this image in my own mind, which I've shared a lot, uh, but it really does capture for me the moment, right, when we bring the Blessed Sacrament into Lucas Oil Stadium and tens of thousands of people kneel, and we, we pray before our Lord, and we ask the Lord, Lord, we love you. Send your Holy Spirit on our country. Renew your church, Lord. We need you, right? That powerful petition of the church in the United States before the Eucharistic Lord will not go unanswered. And we need that moment where as a church we gather and we ask the Lord to do that. Besides the fact that it's just going to be a really good time, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, think of it. Tens of thousands of Catholics whom we all are there because we love our faith and we're talking about all the different aspects of the Eucharist, and we're going to workshops about this, and we're actually learning about um, what's going on across the country, and we're getting to see the beauty of the diversity of our church, right? All the many cultures who love the Eucharist. We're going to have thousands of people in a Eucharistic procession with thousands of people dressed up in their various cultural costumes, right, expressing how the Filipino and the Latino and uh, all the various cultures of our church, the Vietnamese, how they how they love Jesus in the Eucharist, right? And how the Eucharist renews their own culture. Um, it's going to be something, the kind of experience that we haven't had in this country in a long time, and one that can be incredibly renewing for those who attend. Yeah, and I do, I think particularly in the United States, we're not as familiar maybe with some of these like um, big, you know, public events and expressions of the faith that are really built into the fabric of other local churches internationally. And so we're not, because of that lack of familiarity, we're almost like, well, you know, I've got, uh, I've heard you know, someone said to me one time, well, I've got an adoration chapel in my parish. And it's like, good, you should go there too. Like, don't, don't not go, don't, don't come to the Congress and not go to adoration. church. We're not saying that. What we are saying is, uh, that there is God chooses historically, even biblically, we look at the old Testament or different moments of renewal, even for the people of Israel, he, you know, certainly at Pentecost, he chooses to work in times when the when the faithful do gather. And I think what we're doing at the Congress is 
we're sort of pushing all of our chips in on the power of God again. Like we're saying, mm. we're actually really believing in you to be the source of and solution, the answer to every question longing of our hearts, the healing that we all desire personally and as a country and as a church, but also, you know, sort of um, to do something, to show up and act. And I really think that's a powerful um, witness. And, and, and that's what events are really good at, right? Like it's kind of in vogue, I think, in some ministry circles to say, well, what can big events do or what can they accomplish? Or are they worth it? And and I, I really think um, just the, the history of the church and the the, the kind of the, the history of the people of Israel points to um, God's intention to use these mo- these moments to do way more to, for them to be catalysts for ongoing change. Um, you know, if they're done right, right? If it's just about us getting together and and sort of you know we had some cool talks and we had some uh, and we all got to you know kind of be together and go home. But but really everything that's being planned with this Congress is really about lasting conversion in the church. You you talk all the time about encounter and mission. Maybe you could unpack a little bit, like, because people always say, well, what is it, a Eucharistic Congress? And it's like, well, for us, what yeah. it means is these two things. Maybe say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so one is uh, in the encounter of the church, right? It's when we come together in this large of, a, of an event, together as the church, there's a very powerful encounter that happens. And people who have been to them know that. I remember even talking with bishops about this as we were talking about it, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. Like when we've been to World Youth Day, we've been to these big events and we know there's an encounter with, with Christ's church that's very powerful, that's very strengthening for the church herself, right? And of course, we all know, and we all know this from our kind of daily walk uh, with the Lord, that we have to be open to this transformative encounter with him. And that when we meet the living Jesus, it changes us. And it can happen every day. It should, we should be open to it every day. It doesn't happen every day because the Lord doesn't choose to reveal himself every day, but he does choose to reveal himself when we ask him and when we come together in humble faith. And that encounter changes me. And, and it's that change that becomes the missionary fire in me that makes me something I couldn't be on my own. And the missionary fire is really what carries me through the difficulties and struggles that are ahead and through the ability to to begin to evangelize. You know, evangelization and the missionary work that the church has to do is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that comes from an encounter with Jesus where the Holy Spirit then comes into me and begins to lead me and guide me. And this is the kind of experience we want to provide for people at the Congress and and in practical ways too, not just spiritual ways, right? But practical knowledge about um, how am I called to be a missionary? What would it look for me to lead a missionary small group? What's it going to look like for me to begin to make a gift of my life every day as I seek to be a Eucharistic missionary? This kind of um, missionary fire is what the Congress is really aimed at, right? Bringing people together for this encounter where they can be healed, uh, transformed, and then set on fire so that they can go forth then for the life of the world, as we say. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's so critical. John Paul, who you know is my hero, personally here. You said, you know, um, it's more necessary than ever for all the faithful to move from a faith of habit sustained perhaps by social context alone to one which is conscious and personally lived, right? And for me, we've looked at, I mean, very famously, the Pew Research Study or these different studies we've done that shown have shown a delta between those who identify as Catholic and those who can identify or articulate or believe the church's core doctrine, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. that, that Jesus is actually present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. What's a an equally striking statistic to me, and, and I know you've kind of mentioned this as well too, I've read certain interviews you do, um, is uh, 
there's a there's also a delta between um, Catholics who can identify the church's teaching on the Eucharist and Catholics who actually attend Sunday Mass. Or like so, to me that ga- that gap is what you're just describing there, which is encounter. It's like even if you can, like you had you actually had good catechesis growing up, you you know what the church teaches. If you're not engaged in an ongoing living relationship, that too is a critical issue for for the church, uh, a Eucharistic issue. Yeah, and it's what, it's what you see in the scriptures. I, I talk about this a lot, which is a lot of people saw Jesus but weren't changed by him, mm. right? But then some were. And, you know, we, we know their names, Peter and Andrew and Mary Magdalene and Zacchaeus, and, and these people had their lives transformed and because they met Jesus and it changed them. And, you know, we haven't talked yet about the pilgrimage, but this is a unique opportunity for the encounter as well. And I think may even be more surprising opportunities for encounter as we are literally going along the roads of the country from parish to parish with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and inviting people to encounter him. And I think we're going to see there, you know, some very surprising things that happen as people begin to understand, like, what are the Catholics doing, you know, as we're going around and, uh, and as again, as we lift up the Lord in, in, in humble and simple ways, as we process with him along the along the way towards Indianapolis. Yeah. So, so yeah, for those who are not aware, we can unpack this a little bit. So the National Eucharistic Revival as an umbrella initiative has this local grassroots revival. It has a National Eucharistic Congress as its moment. You called it a pilgrimage kind of fittingly. Um, and, and it's a five-day event in Indianapolis, July 17th, 21st, 2024. But the two months uh, of sort of the beginning of the Congress ex- experience or event in some ways you could say, is this national first ever, you know, maybe only ever national Eucharistic pilgrimage? God willing, maybe not. But um, yeah, so so say more about that. Like, wh- where did that kind of come from, and what do you see as sort of the the unique uh, need? Yeah. There? So as we were talking about the national Eucharistic revivals, one of the big ideas that came about came out was maybe we should try to do a Eucharistic procession from coast to coast, and. Uh, a lot of people told us that was impossible, logistically impossible, and I even believed them at first. I thought, yeah, it's logistically impossible. And then somebody had the idea that maybe we should do it not from coast to coast, but we should do it from the coasts and from the north and from the south and make a cross that meets at Indianapolis, which is right in the heart of the country. And it was really our Eucharistic preachers who, who convinced me that we could do this and that we should do it. And, uh, you know, grateful for benefactors and other people who make it possible. And the logistics of it are incredible, right? Immense. Because we are really going to go across the country. We won't be able to walk the whole country because, you know, you can only walk maximum 20 miles in a day and there's not a church every 20 miles. And so we're going to have to drive some days to get from church to church, but we are going to go across the country as much as possible on foot, adoring the Lord, praying for our country, really in a prophetic, but also evangelistic act. Um, as we simply reveal who Jesus is to us going across our country on this pilgrimage towards Indianapolis. And so we're going to start in Brownsville, Texas, right at the border. We're going to start in San Francisco at the cathedral. We're going to go across the Golden Gate Bridge right away. We're going to start at the tomb of Blessed Michael McGivney in Connecticut. And then, of course, my favorite is Lake Itasca State Park, the headwaters of the Mississippi, which happens to be in the Diocese of Crookston right up here near Canada. And we're going to start a procession down to Indianapolis. Yeah, the, the home team. Maybe might have had something to do with that. But the um, yep. one of my favorite, so Bishop Rhodes, who's on our board of directors, the Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, 
as sort of a chance. One, he just wanted this in his diocese, right? This last summer, 2023, uh, sort of a, a celebration from Fort Wayne to South Bend, like 110 miles or whatever, right? He wanted to do his own local, you know, Eucharistic pilgrimage. And it gave us a great chance to work with our team to sort of say, <laughs> you know, can you actually do this? Like, is this actually mm-hmm. um, possible? And it was, it was beautiful and very powerful. And there's great coverage um, that I know the pillar and other publications did online that sort of, that sort of said, you know, uh, their experience of it. But one of the stories um, that we heard after, you know, to me encapsulates, because what is the National Eucharistic Pilgrimage? It's intercession, right? We're praying for our, mm-hmm. our, our country. But it's also, like you said, this, this moment of encounter and, and sort of witness with where Jesus is going out to people. And, and I love the story of the, the girl. Um, could you tell that? Yeah, so they were, you know, they're going town to town. And as they came into this town, there was a girl playing in the front yard, a, you know, a young girl. And she saw this procession coming with the cross and the end of the Blessed Sacrament. And she ran into the house and she put on her first communion dress. And she came out and she knelt down in the yard. <laughs> Just so beautiful. Like she knew Jesus was coming and she knew that she had to get ready. <laughs> and uh, to think of that impact on that little girl, right? And this is part of the, my vantage point of the Eucharistic Revival that a lot of people don't have, you know, um, is... I get to see these stories, you know, like the mom who sent me a picture that her, her son who made a first communion had painted our, our logo, you know, um, on a, on a, on a painting and just a little piece of art, you know, second grader preparing for his first communion, puts the Eucharistic revival logo, paints it himself and hangs it up in his room with a little shrine. And he says to his mom afterwards, he says, you know, all of us can have a Eucharistic revival in our hearts, mom. You know, this is the second grade, right? And that's the Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit spreading the fire. And that's what this whole thing's about. Hearts catching on fire. And when that fire catches, that's what makes us missionaries, right? And uh, that's why we've called it a revival. That's why I said from the beginning, we're, we're starting to fire not a program. It's those grassroots experiences, that little girl in her first communion dress, that little boy, you know, does a painting before his first communion, they'll remember there was a Eucharistic revival and they'll be impacted by it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just to sort of launch from that, maybe to invite um, sort of those who are listening, right? Like what's the beauty, the beauty of Catholicism is that it's hyper-local and it's always been that way, right? We've always talked about the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, right? Like there's a, an incarnate nature to the church and that can be a really powerful thing. But for some, we've heard them express that it can also be a painful thing when they feel like their parish isn't doing much or whatever. And mm-hmm. no matter what, I think all of us are invited to what that little boy is articulating. Like in my own experience, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, this is my J-O-B now, right? Like this is my, this is, uh, I was going to say my nine to five, but it's a lot more than that, right? But like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is my full-time work is thinking about, you know, assisting you and the bishop sort of in how to, um, spread this movement um, across the country and how to have the Congress be the moment of encounter that the bishops are, are inviting the church to and, and all of that. Right. But the first thing for me that I've really felt is I've prayed about like, all right, Lord, what are you doing in this? Is like, I, I feel like he keeps just pointing the finger at me. He's like, he's like looking right into my heart and saying, yeah, yeah, this is all like, thank you. But like, we're, I want to move there first. And so I think no matter what, you know, the Eucharistic revival now for the, for anyone who might like, it's happening everywhere in schools and in parishes and in orders and communities and in academia and in uh, the, the the streets of different cities. Like it, there's really a lot going on nationally, but none of us should miss the opportunity to say like, 
how, how does this first become like the need for me to be healed and converted and formed and the, the need for me to participate in a greater unifying movement movement of the church like this isn't going to happen we used to say i used to work the archdiocese of denver as you know we used to say like um like your god's plan like you are the cavalry you know what i mean like that's there's there's mm-hmm. and, and so the same i would say the same thing here with this eucharistic revival is the the challenge or the invitation to those of us listening is like don't miss this chance in the season of extraordinary grace to the of, of um you know for the church uh, that our lord has invited us to that our bishops have prophetically announced uh don't miss this chance to avail yourselves um of the graces the healing grace of confession the healing grace of Jesus in the Eucharist, the time and adoration that can truly change your life forever. Um, he is generous and he is faithful and he is good uh, and he's powerful. He can actually move. And so Bishop, for for you and in your role, uh, sort of in, um, and in, I know in the incredible sacrifices and sufferings that it's taken for you to sort of shepherd and, and steward this movement uh, for for three years now and for, for probably a couple more at least to come, right? We're tremendously grateful to you. No one will ever know um, what it's taken for you to, um, sort of be faithful to God's invitation for doing this. So thank you for joining us here today. And thank you for um, for all you're doing uh, for the church. I want to leave with kind of one maybe um, final chance for um, you to just, you know, uh, kind of it, when you think about um, the Congress and you think about, um, you know, sort of that that moment in that church for the church, what are you most um, kind of excited about or looking forward to? You know, just as you said, um, what is it that really changes the church? It's saints. Mm. Saints change the church. So my hope is that there's a young person at that conference who decides after hearing one of the talks or spending time in adoration, or they decide they want to be a saint. And they decide they're going to follow God wherever God will lead, and they're going to open their heart completely to him. My hope is that happens to dozens and dozens of people at the conference, um, at the Congress. But um, that's what's going to change the church, right? Just as you said, us making our hearts completely docile before him because he wants to make us saints. And that's my great goal is the the spiritual impact of this in the hearts of people um, that God might work and choose from from our midst, those people who will actually lead and transform the church of the future. Yeah, beautiful. Parents, dads in particular, uh, there's day passes now, there's weekend passes. I've got four young kids. Uh, you know, like, I get it. I get that it can be hard to travel. You heard it from Bishop Cousins. Don't miss this chance uh, for your family to come before our Eucharistic Lord together um, and to be transformed. Um, I think there's a really unique moment um, for all of us to become saints. And, and for, like you said, in a particular way, the young people who are the future of the church, we have a youth track, we have a family track, we have uniquely um, powerful moments of encounter, and we have um, restful spaces in case your, uh, your baby's crying. So um, don't miss this. Bishop, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your leadership in the church. And thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. We couldn't do it without you either. Sure. <laughs> God help us all. Thank you. Yeah. God bless. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Revive. 
Uh, for more on the National Eucharistic Revival, visit eucharisticrevival.org. Uh, and if you want to join us in Indianapolis, and I know after listening to Bishop Cousins, you do for this historic encounter with the living Jesus in the Eucharist in order to be sent on mission for the life of the world, don't forget to register today uh, before tickets go for the National Eucharistic Congress at eucharisticcongress.org. Keep us in prayer. You're in ours. God bless you. Have a great day. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.